All right. Well, welcome to our our uh, new members and visitors of the group here. It's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, we're picking up the story in, in the journey through Exodus. We're close to the end of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 33, and as Adam had just filled us in, we're Moses came down from the the mountain after being up there 40 days with the Lord. And uh, after the golden calf was smashed and 3,000 people lost their lives because of the sin of idolatry, uh, there's a little minor account about the, the people had to leave their jewelry. They were told to leave their jewelry and their fancy clothes behind. Uh, as they they got ready to uh, uh, contemplate the next phase of their journey. And so we're going to pick up right after that, Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 7. I'm reading from a version which is based on the the Septuagint, which is probably very similar to whatever version you're following along with. Exodus 33, I'm going to read verses 7 to 11. And then we're going to ask some tough questions of the text and try to try to, to, to see what we can find out here. So uh, starting verse 7, Moses then took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of testimony. Thus it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of testimony, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, which was outside the camp, all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he went into the tabernacle. Now it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and God talked to Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, And all the people rose and worshipped, each man at his tent door. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. Then he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So... uh, so that's the, that's the text we're going to look at today. So basic storyline, Moses sets up his tent outside the camp, and uh, it talks about tent, and it talks about tabernacle here. Actually, the word is exactly the same, and, and the, the Septuagint is the exact same word. So tent, tent tabernacle, it's the, it's, it's the same word, the same thing. So, uh, so to keep that in mind, so he calls it, he, he sets up his tent, and then it says, it says in the translation I just read from, he calls it the tabernacle of testimony, or the tent, tent of meeting. Uh, this is, this is uh, uh, not to be confused with the tabernacle that is set up at the center of the camp, the tabernacle. So he, this, is, this, is a, this is something totally different from that. So this is Moses' own tent that he goes out. He goes outside the camp. So you have... You know, once the tabernacle was built, which which will happen later, Moses got the instruction for the tabernacle. The tabernacle's at the center of the camp, and then the 12 tribes are all camped right around that. So that's the camp. So he's going outside the camp, and he's pitching his own tent out there. It says far from the camp. And this, this is referred to, depending on what translation you're reading, it sometimes is called the tabernacle of meeting or the tent of meeting or the tabernacle of the congregation. 
So diff different names, but it's all, all the same thing. Uh, so Moses would go out to this. If people wanted to inquire the Lord, they'd go out to where Moses' tent was, and Moses would go out there periodically himself to meet with the Lord and to speak with the Lord. And um, so it says, says, those everyone who sought the Lord went out to this tent. And uh, when Moses went out to meet the Lord, all the people stood at the door of their tents and watched Moses go out. So this is, you're just, just going to imagine the, the excitement. Moses is going out to meet with the Lord, and all the people are standing at their tent, and they're all watching Moses go out there. And, uh, you know, who says we learn that Joshua's with him as well. And when Moses goes out, the people see the pillar of cloud descending on the tent, that Moses, Moses' tent, and they fall down and worship each one at the door of his own tent. And it says, The Lord speaks with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friends. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> he spoke to him face to face. We'll, we'll take a look at that a little bit. And then after speaking with the Lord, it says, Moses returns to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, his young servant Joshua, stays there at this tent of meeting. So, so Moses goes back, but, but his assistant stays there. Now, why is that mentioned? Why is that there? You know, it's just these little one-liners that are thrown in the story. And you think, well, why is it necessary that we know that particular detail? Well, recall this young man, Joshua... That wasn't, his, that wasn't the name he was born with. His name was, we know from the story in Numbers 13, when they send the 12 spies out, in Numbers 13, verse 16, or in the Septuagint, it's, it's verse 17 there, it says that Moses changed his name. His name was originally Hosea, the son of Nun, and Moses changed his name to Joshua, the son of Nun. Or in the Septuagint, which... You know, Jesus and the apostles generally quote from the Septuagint, the, the real Greek version of it. It's Jesus, the son of Nun. So his name was changed to Jesus. So this is the Moses' assistant, and he's the one who remains in the tent of meeting. It's Jesus. And so when you're reading it, you're reading it along in the same language as the New Testament. It's the same word. It's like, okay, my name is Charles. In Spanish, it's Carlos. It's but it's the same exact. It's the same word in two different languages. So Joshua is Hebrew, Jesus is Greek, but it's the same exact name, regardless regardless of the language. So when people are reading this in Greek. They're reading the New Testament. They're reading the Old Testament. It's the same name. It's the same word. So that's something I didn't get until a few years ago. I was reading an early Christian writer who's talking about Jesus, the son of Nun, and I said, wait a minute, that's Joshua, the son of Nun. I go back and say, no, actually, he's right. It is Jesus. So so that, maybe you think, okay, there's something, maybe there's something a little more here, and, and recall that uh, a few other things that we've learned about this 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 Jesus, of the Old Testament Jesus, um, uh a couple of things that, that we learn is, well, it's mentioned in the New Testament two places, as Stephen talks about in Acts chapter 7, and then in Hebrews chapter 3, he's mentioned there also. And if you're reading in the New Testament, it's, it's called Jesus there because it's written in Greek. Uh, and let's recall about this particular, the first Jesus here, as opposed to the, the second one that was born uh, from Mary, that 
First thing, first time we saw him was in Exodus 17, where Moses is up on the hill, and remember, he's got to hold his hands up, and he's got the staffs, so he's making all day long, he's up there, he's basically, the early Christians, this is, he's, he's acting out the cross, he's got his hands up all day, one man on each side, and while he's doing that, Jesus is winning the battle down below while he's holding up his hands all day long. The early Christians saw the obvious significance of this and they pointed this out to the Jews. And then when Moses goes up on the mountain to be with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights when he's fasting, he brings along only his assistant Joshua or Jesus goes up with him on the mountain and comes down. He's the one, when they're coming down the mountain, he's the one who says, Wow, it's pretty noisy here. Sounds like the sound of war. And he says, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of a drunken party that people are having here. So he's the one who says that. So that's what, we, that's what we've seen him so far in the story. But here he is. He's, he's Moses, and he's going with Moses into the tent, and he's staying there even after Moses leaves. So, um, And then later on, in uh, Numbers 27, when Moses is going, is told that he's going to die and he will no longer, he will not be leading the people into the promised land. And he is concerned and he says, I don't want the people to be like sheep without a shepherd. And God and the Lord says, lay hands on Jesus. He'll finish the job and take the people the rest of the way. So there's obviously, so we see even the name of Jesus, the successor to Moses, the one who will complete the job, the one who will bring about the victory, the one who is in the presence of God like no one else is, is given to us here in, in, the, in the Old Testament, starting in the story of Exodus. So it's a... A wonderful thing. And I'm also reminded in Joshua chapter 1, Moses is dead and Joshua, Jesus, the, you know, the first Jesus, is going to be leading the people into Canaan. And the Lord comforts him and encourages him. And he says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. So, so that's, that's what he does. Um, so a couple of questions. Moses is setting up his tent. Now, Moses had his tent. I mean, obviously, when everybody's camping out, everybody's got their own tent. Every family's got their own tent. Why did Moses have to set up his tent outside the camp? Wait, and it says far outside the camp. Why do you have to do that? Why couldn't he just leave it where it was and visit the Lord in his, in his own tent? So, yeah, it's just wondering. And why does it bother mentioning that? That, no, Moses had to relocate his tent far outside the camp and then he had to go out there. Anybody who anybody who wanted to seek the Lord would go out there. Will go out there uh, as well. So, um, why do he do that? And and I don't know why he doesn't say anywhere in scriptures. But I'm just I'm just trying to think. Is there some some reason why that was in there? And I'll, I'll tell you something. It made me think of, and I'll throw it out there just as a possibility. Okay, this whole expression outside the camp. Does that ring a bell anything in the New Testament outside the camp? Going to meet the Lord outside the camp. Well, it's Hebrews 13, obviously. So let's take a look there and think about that. And this is, I'm just, it's just a possibility. I'm just throwing it out there because I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrestle with this and seeing are there any 
Is there anything that's more to the story than what's at the surface? And in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews writer says, starting in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's talking about the, the Jewish priests. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought in the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So, now the point the Hebrews writer is making here, this is based on, actually based on something in, in, in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus 4, uh, that the 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 bull of the sin, it talks about the different animal offerings, is said for the sin offering, you, you sacrifice a bull, and then you you take the, the, the hide and the guts of the bull and, and the leftovers and you burn them outside the camp. That was where it was specified. And so this is what he's referring to. That's the main point he's making here. And he's, I think that he's basing it out of that story, out of that story from the Old Testament. The application he's making is that the temple sacrifices, that whole system is inadequate. What took place at the tabernacle and the temple was not going to do the job. That we have to look outside the camp for the answer. That this was foreshadowing that the sin offering would be suffering outside the camp, just as the, the body of the bull was burned outside the camp. Our, our atonement wouldn't come from the tabernacle, it would come from outside. And uh, Jesus, of course, suffered outside, he was crucified outside the city. Uh, and, but I think of what it says in verse 13, let us go therefore to him outside the camp. So that's, that's the line that sticks with me. And recall from Exodus 33:11 it says after Moses returned to the camp Jesus remained in the tent that was outside the camp so he stays there and uh, so I don't know I mean the, the, the we know from Deuteronomy 18 that Moses the God told Moses that he in the future he sent a prophet just like Moses and there, there's some things we know is that the, the Jesus the from from this from all these these references here, the Jesus, the name would be the name of the prophet, the one who would succeed Moses, the one who would be just like him, that he would be one that would have an intimate relationship with the Father that would even surpass that of Moses, that he is the one who would remain with the Father, and that he would suffer outside the camp, outside the city, and outside the the uh, the main tabernacle. And really, we must go where he is outside the camp if we want to find him. So I'll just put that out there. I, so I'm thinking about this, you know, why placing the, the tent outside the camp? And, and why does it say that, 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 that Jesus, Joshua, has to stay there? Now, another question I had was, it says that the pillar of cloud 
So Moses goes into the tent after he says that Moses goes into the tent and then the pillar of cloud comes down. Um, so what's that? What's, what's the pillar, the pillar of cloud? Well, um, we've touched on that before, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about how the whole Exodus journey is a map that's foreshadowing the Christian life. And it starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It starts out in verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I want you to I do not want you to be unaware. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So he's saying that all our fathers, the, the, the people who went on the Exodus journey, they're basically foreshadowing us. They're our spiritual, spiritual fathers, all right? Uh so the, the, the church, the Christians, are foreshadowed by the nation of Israel. They all pass through the water. That's foreshadowing baptism. They were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. So baptized the cloud and the sea, water and the spirit. So this is what Jesus talks about in John 3, 5. No one can be born again unless... Uh, no one can uh, see the Father unless he's born of water and the spirit. So they're, they're baptized in the cloud and the sea. If the sea is the water, what's the cloud? Cloud is the spirit. Okay, so it's pretty pretty obvious parallel. It just says, hey, just like we're all baptized in the water and the spirit, they were all baptized in the water and the spirit and the cloud and the sea. All right, that's that's the point he's making. Is that and the point he's making ultimately is just because you've been baptized, okay, doesn't mean you've made it to the end of the the end of the road. So he's saying, you know, you, you're, you're in a time of testing in the wilderness. You gotta you gotta pass the test if you want to make it to the promised land. Don't think you've got it made just because you've been baptized. That's the point he's making. But we see in this this, this allegory explanation that Paul gives that the waters baptism, the people rep- foreshadowing the church, and the cloud is the Holy Spirit. Now, when did the pillar of cloud first appear? In the story of Exodus, right after the Passover lamb is slain, that's exactly when the cloud appears. The night that the Passover lamb is slain, the cloud appears, leads the people out of Egypt to the Red Sea, and then leads them through the water and leads them for 40 years through the promised land. Now, what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in John 16? He says, this this verse here got me a a year ago thinking, whoa, I better take another look at the Holy Spirit. There's something pretty significant here. This is the verse that did it. John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then down in verse 12, he explains that the helper is it's the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit. So he says, I have to leave so that the spirit can come. And that's exactly what we saw. Passover lamb is slain. And then the pillar of cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire is you know, cloud by day, fire by night appears and leads them the rest of the way. So this is this is all foreshadowed in the story here. So uh, now. The people, when the people see the pillar of cloud and fire, what is their response in the story that we just read? 
It says, it says they rise up and then it says that they bow down and worship. And the same word that's used there when it says that they worship is this, it's the same exact word that we see in the Ten Commandments, both in the Exodus 20 version, which we went through, and also in Deuteronomy 5, is where the Lord says he's a jealous God. The first two commandments, he says, you will have no other gods before you. He says, don't make an image of any of them, of anything else, and don't bow down and worship them. All right? Only one God. Don't bow down and worship them. Uh, so they see the pillar of cloud and fire descending, and the people bow down and worship. Now, when they bow down and worship the golden calf, it didn't go very well. They got 3,000 of them got killed. But here they're bowing down and worshiping when they see the pillar of cloud descend. What does that tell you there? Does that, does that suggest something to you? Okay, suggest something to me too. I'll tell you why this is important. Last Sunday, I'm not, I'm not sure who's on this call right now, but who's, who's, on, who's on the line, but the, the, uh, last Sunday we were singing a song about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Holy Spirit. And afterwards... I got uh, a strong pushback from someone who was listening remotely, and he asked. Her, I thought he asked a really good question. He said, "When in the, in, the, in the Bible it talks about worshiping the Father, yes, it talks about worshiping the Son, mm-hmm. yes, but he said I can't think of anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament where it talks about worshiping the Holy Spirit." And I thought, "Wow, that's a really good. That's a, that's a good. I never thought about that before." And then it just, just so happened, here we are, we're reading through this. I'm not setting it up this way. And this pillar of cloud and fire descends, which is the Holy Spirit, and the people are bowing down and worshiping, and they're not getting in trouble for it. So why is it that they didn't get in trouble? Because you can only worship God. You can't worship any created things. Okay, so put the pieces together on that. Um, so anyway, I just, just throw, throwing that out there. Uh, so I think, you know, question is, why was it okay for the people to worship down when they saw the pillar of cloud and cloud descend? Uh, and I would say it's because uh, it's it's appropriate that to, to worship God only. We don't worship any created thing. And, and this was this was clearly uh, represented the Holy Spirit. So according to what Paul said in First Corinthians 10. So I'll just, just throwing that out there. Uh, now, here, here's the here's the big question. All right. Here's the here's the big question to me that I want to focus on in, in the rest of, of the lesson here. It says Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now, um, Abraham had lunch with with God. But this is this is to me this is going beyond this. This is he's speaking like he's face to face like you speak with your friend. Um, so I'm thinking, what does this mean? What is this all about? And is this just something? Is this just is this a relationship that Moses had that is beyond our reach or our ability, or or is there is there something that we can learn from this as well for our own benefit? First question is, it says Moses spoke with God face to face. Now, if, I, if I'm speaking with somebody face to face, 
That means we're in the same room. We're looking at each other. We're not doing it virtually. We're doing it face-to-face means I see your face, you see my face. So is that what it means? And, and cl- later on, we'll find out clearly it's not what it means because Moses asked to see the Lord later on, and the God says, you can't see my face. If you saw my face, you'd be a dead man. It's basically no one can see my face. No one can see my face and live. And, and so obviously when it says he saw him face to face, it didn't mean he was seeing the face of God. It's an expression that has to mean something other than that. That there's a closeness, there's a proximity, but uh, uh, so so it can't mean that he was he was literally seeing the face of God because God explains Moses asked later to do that. God explains she can't do it; it's not possible. New Testament says no one has ever seen God, the faith, you know, speaking of the Father. So uh, so that's that's a no to that one. Now the whole thing about speaking Moses. Spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So let me ask you a question. Do you speak to God like this? Do you speak to God as if he's your friend? Okay. Should you speak to God as if he's your friend? Is that something you should we should be doing? Um, now... My first reaction when I think about that is I think of a lot of people who who are convinced that God is their friend, God loves them, God thinks they're awesome, he's their best buddy, he's their co-pilot, you know, God God and I are just like this, who are living totally ungodly lives, okay, aren't obeying the word of God, but they're convinced that God is like that. So you see one group of people, you see another group of people, that are serious about the commands of God, and they're like almost like afraid of God. So I want to make sure I don't do anything wrong, you know, because God's gonna if I do, I have to follow all the rules because if I don't follow one of the rules, He's gonna smite me. He's you know, so I got to do everything He says. So it's, it seems like the people who are really loose about following God think that they're God's friends, and the people who are really serious about following the commands of God are. Worshipful and fearful of God, and and would 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 be very reluctant to to speak of God as being their friend. You follow? Does that make sense to you? Okay, you can relate to that. So, so I'm I'm stopping and trying to process this. All right, I don't want to have an imaginary friend. You know, little little children, two three year olds, they have their imaginary friends. Okay, some of them do. My 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 grandson doesn't have one of those yet that I know of. He hasn't told me about it if he does, but some little kids will have imagine. I don't want God to be my imaginary friend. It's basically it's easier. He's a friend in your imagination, right? But can can a person have a relationship like this where God really is their friend, and they can speak to God as, as a friend and. So I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. The, the, the scripture, the other scripture in the Old Testament that comes to mind about this, this is, is a prayer of Jehoshaphat in, in 2 Chronicles. Uh, it's a wonderful prayer when he talks about Abraham being a friend of God. Uh, so, so, so Moses was a friend of God, but, but Jehoshaphat under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Abraham was a friend of God. I want to read that. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's a wonderful story. Uh, 
We don't go into Second Chronicles very often, but let's let's do that here. Second Chronicles chapter twenty. This is the uh, wonderful victory that's that that comes about through Jehoshaphat, who's one of the really good good kings. And uh, it's gonna. Start reading in verse 1. It says, After this time, the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon and others from the Meonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And they came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude has come against you from beyond the sea from Syria. There it has is on Tamar, which is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered to seek the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem before the new court in the house of the Lord, and said, Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not the Lord who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever? And in it they settled and built you a sanctuary in it to your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, whether sword or judgment, death or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house, and it cries out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Here are the sons of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel capture when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned from them and did not destroy them. Now they are here attempting to throw us out of the inheritance you gave us. Lord our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude coming against us. We do not know what to do to them. But our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah stood before the Lord with their wives and their children. So beautiful, beautiful prayers. He says, look, God, you gave us this land. These people are coming against us, and we don't know what to do. This is, this is completely out of our control. You're the God of heaven and earth. You can take care of this. And he appeals to him also on the basis of the promise that he made to Abraham. And he says it so beautifully, uh, he says, uh, "You gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever." So this is he. He views. He says, "Abraham's your friend forever." Now, I, I think in James two it talks about Abraham being God's friend. And I assume that this is this is what it's based on because I don't know any, anywhere else in the Scripture where it says that. But James talks about Abraham was God's friend. So this is. Abraham and Moses are described as friends of God. And I think, let's look at the passage in James chapter 2 that talks about this. Um, And and, and I want to take, this is a a famous passage about relationship between faith and works. I want to stop and think, what do we learn about what does it take to be a friend of God from this passage? James chapter 2, verse 14. What is a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give it to them the things which are needed for the body, 
what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works his faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So, uh, so this, this is, this is the, the picture here. Faith without works is dead. Faith is made perfect means, we think of perfect as flawless, it means complete. Okay, so faith is made complete. So real faith, complete faith, is not just believing, but doing what it says. Because even the demons believe that, 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 count, that counts for nothing. So the real, the real test is, so he's pointed out that he was made righteous, and he was declared a friend of God because he believed God and he obeyed God. He did what God said. And therefore, he was called, he was justified by his faith, and he was declared as a friend of God. So, so that's one of the things I learned about is Abraham, friend of God, Moses, a friend of God. What makes somebody a friend of God? I want to be a friend of God. I want God to consider me to be his friend. And, and I, want, I want, if it's possible for me to have that kind of relationship, I want to have it. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, you can learn a lot, a lot of things by studying the opposite. If I, if I, sometimes if I don't know what God wants me to do, I'll ask myself the question, what does Satan want me to do? And I'll do the opposite of that. So I, <laughs> sometimes I can, I can back into, working backwards, I can work it out that way. So if you want to find out what is it, take to be a friend of God, one of the ways you can do that is to say, all right, what does it take to be not a friend of God? And then do the opposite, work backwards from that. So so Paul, I mean, sorry, James talks about that. Okay, what is it, what does it take to be an enemy of God? He's writing to Christians. He says, if you want to really get God on the wrong side of God, here's what you do. So uh, <laughs> James chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You do not, and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he 
will lift you up. So if you want to be an enemy of God, you don't want to be God's friend. He's writing to Christians. What do you do? Well, okay, you, 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 you fight and war with each other. That's one thing you do. You, don't, you want to be an enemy of God. You live for pleasure. All right? Love the world. All right? You want to love the world or you want to love, want to love the Lord? You choose which one you're going to do. Be a friend of the world. Be proud. Resist God and don't resist Satan. This is basically tells you right here. If you want to, you want you want to be an enemy of God, here's the things you do. Well, let's turn it around the other way. If you want to be a friend of God, what do you do? Well, you resist Satan and you resist temptations. You don't be a friend of the world. You be unified and don't war with one another. You live according to the promptings of the spirit that lives inside of you. You submit to God. You're not double-minded. You purify your hearts. You mourn for your sin. You humble yourselves in the sight of God. So this is what you want to do if you want to be a friend of God. You do the opposite things. And then I want to close with one more thought about what does it mean to be a friend of God. And it's this encouraging passage of Scripture because it opens up the door for friendship to us. I think of the Friends Friends of God Club. This is an exclusive club. All right, Moses is in there. Abraham's in there. And I want to knock on the door saying, are you taking any more members in the Friends of God Club? And uh, so I want to find out, is, is, is the membership still open or not? And what does it take to get inside? Let's turn to Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon was, was in, in the original King James. It was, it was taken out about uh, a little over 100 years ago. And, so, uh, and, and early Christians uh, had tremendous respect for this book. So in Wisdom of Solomon... Verse 7. Or in first Psalms, if you don't have the Septuagint, right, Chuck? Well, if you don't have the Septuagint, you just can listen along really well right now, okay? So, so uh, uh, Wisdom of Solomon is in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, and it's in the Septuagint. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7. I'm going to read two, pa- two selections from here, and starting in verse 7. <clears throat> the writer says, Therefore I prayed. And discernment was given to me. I appealed to God, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepter and thrones, and regarded wealth as nothing in comparison to her. Nor did I liken her to any priceless stone, because all gold is only a little sand in her sight, and silver will be counted as clay before her. I loved her more than health and beauty and chose her instead of light because her light is sleepless. All good things came to me together with her and in her hands countless wealth. I was gladdened by all of them because wisdom rules them, but I did not know she was their mother. So I learned both honestly and ungrudgingly and I do not hide her wealth. For it is an unfailing treasure for men who, when they get it, obtain friendship with God. For they demonstrate her gifts that come from instruction. So it's a beautiful statement. He says, I sought wisdom. Now, the Holy Spirit in, in, in Isaiah 11 is his first, first characteristic, the spirit of wisdom. 
So he says, I'm seeking wisdom. I'm seeking spiritual wisdom. He says, I'd rather have wisdom than power, than thrones, than money, than gems, than gold, than silver. All these things are nothing. Wisdom provides a light that never sleeps. It's there all the time. And he says, those who gain wisdom, when they get it, he's talking about spiritual wisdom, they obtain friendship with God. So this is seeking spiritual wisdom and value, and, and those, who, who, those who value it above everything, above everything else, seeking, seeking the wisdom and truth. And then I want to continue down in verse 21. I'll start halfway through there. It says, For wisdom, the artisan of all things, taught me. So in herself, wisdom is a spirit that is rational, holy, unbegotten, manifold, subtle, easily moved, clear, undefiled, manifest, invulnerable, loving what is good, keen, unhindered, beneficent, man-loving, steadfast, unfailing, free from worry, all-powerful, all-surveying, and penetrating all spirits that are rational, pure, and most subtle. For wisdom moves from one place to another more easily than motion itself. And because of her purity, she penetrates all things. So she is the exhalation of the power of God and the emanation of the pure glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled enters her. For she is the radiance of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the operative power of God and the image of his goodness. Though she is one, she can do all things. So while remaining in herself, she renews all things. And in every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. So it sounds like the the doors of the club are still open, that people in any generation can enter and become friends of God. It says that those who speak spiritual wisdom in any generation become the friends of God. So uh, what do we need to do? Value spiritual wisdom above all things. Hunger and thirst for it. See how powerful it is. See how much more valuable it is than wealth, health, beauty, any other thing in this world, and how it keeps us from evil, how it penetrates all things, how it reflects the glory of God. So the challenge is, for for me personally, the challenge is Moses spoke to God as a man speaks with his friend. Um, And I think that, that while we fear God, and, and reverence him and worship him that like Moses the door is open for us to enter into a relationship where we can speak to God as a man speaks with his friend but it can't be an imaginary friend if we really want to be friends of God and join this exclusive club where anyone can enter who wants to but it's not based on just feelings. Lots of people feel like they're friends of God, but it's emotional friendship. It's just like the, the people in James, it says, you fools. You, you know, even the demons believe that, that a true friend of God is someone who obeys God, 
who puts the teachings of God into practice just like Abraham did in the beginning. Someone who's walking with God, someone who's seeking God, someone who wants to spend time with God, and someone who speaks spiritual wisdom above all things and dedicates themselves to that with the same attitude that, that it speaks about in the wisdom of Psalms. I want to want to encourage you, leave, the, leave you on an encouraging note that um, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of people uh, give me a hard time for uh, focusing on the Old Testament too much because they think, you know, God, you took, you're just concerned about laws, you're just concerned about rules and regulations and the scary stuff, and, you know, God's coming down on Mount Sinai and he's scaring everyone half to death and, you know, the, the, the mountain is set aside. Anybody who touches it's going to be going to be stoned and shot to death. Well, but you get to see this too. You also get to see Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now, God is to be feared. As Paul says, consider the kindness and the sternness of God. But I want to encourage all of you to, to, to seek to be a true friend of God who can have that kind of relationship and speak to God that way. That's what he wants from us. And uh, through Jesus, who's the mediator, it's, it's even easier to us, who's in the presence of God, uh, just like, just like uh, Jesus was in, in the tent there. He remained there. Jesus remains at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And, and, and just let's make this our life's goal to become wonderful, real friends of God. Amen.